scary girl. Hi, everybody. Hey, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Sarah. And, and this, this is Dead Time Stories. A weekly podcast where Sarah and I get together to talk about ghost stories, true crime, supernatural, paranormal, cults, conspiracies, or just whatever like weird, spooky, eerie, strange things we want to talk about that week because it's our show. And not yours. Uh, If it's your first time listening, stop and go back to the first episode. (laughs) Thank you. We will see you when you catch up. It's going to be a wild ride. Okay, welcome back. Welcome back. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Here's our normal antics here on Dead Time Stories. I love it. I'm so here for it. I'm about it. I support it. Um, I'm here. I made a sign. I subscribe to the Patreon for it. So let's go. I'm here in this life, in this body. I was in that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I thought about that the other day. Did you? <laughs> I was just thinking about that. <laughs> I was in that. I feel like that, maybe that would be the title of my memoir. I was in that. <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> that is the title of your memoir. <laughs> and then the follow-up would be, yeah, you did. <laughs> <laughs> or is it, yeah, you were. <laughs> yeah, you were. The sequel to... I was in that. The Sarah Hedden story. (laughs) We're going to be in a show together. We are. We're going to be in that. I know. I was like, do we announce it yet? Because it's still five months away. But keep your ears open in May, y'all. Yeah, because we're doing a show together. Uh, Mary Angela's directing. And it's us and people that we love. Teresa is in it. Yes. Angel is Angels in it. and I was like, are we doing the whole cast? Because I would need to recheck my list. Uh, uh. I'm like, is that all Kate. of us? Kate. Kate, I love yeah. Kate. The, Kate the cast is fantastic. It's a comedy. And guess what, y'all? We're doing it in a graveyard. Oh my God. And you know I'm into so, it. I'm gonna bring the spear it's forward. It's gonna well mm. <laughs> <laughs> that my mood changed. It it stopped. <laughs> it's gonna mm. Mm. <laughs> Who are you playing? Portia from Merchant of Venice. I haven't read the script yet, so I don't know what that means. Me either. (laughs) So yeah, it's going to be a great time. We'll promo it when we get closer and closer to the date. But uh, keep your ears peeled. We'll be coming at you I'm so excited. I'm excited to have a gig lined up. I'm excited to have a gig lined up with you, with Mary Angela, with people that I love. And we're going to do it safely. And y'all should come get vaccinated and see this show. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, even if you don't get vaccinated, it's going to be outside. So you can social distance, wear your mask. And come and see the show. And don't get near anybody else. And guess what? I'm going to be vaccinated, so. There you go. Uh, it's on you, then. That, that's if on you. If you get the COVID. <laughs> but I realize that not everyone is going to be a part of this, like, first initial different series of rollouts. I know, so. I know. I'm, I make jokes. If you can't. If you think it's not, you don't have to be vaccinated to come. Please come and give us your money and come see the show. Maybe we'll get, like, a fourth STEMI by then. Who, Who knows? knows? Things are crazy, y'all. I do want to say, though, Girl. us doing this show live together does not equal our live show goal for the year. That's something else. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, we need a live show, like an actual live show. Episode 200? It's coming up. This is episode 141. I know. So. That gives us, you know, 60 weeks. How many weeks are in a year? Like 70? No no clue. I don't know. Hey, Google, how many weeks are in a year? One year is approximately 52.177 weeks. Okay, so like next year. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Hey, Google, set a calendar reminder. (laughs) Oh, she can't hear you because I've had Mine started talking. (laughs) Shut up. Hey, Google, stop. (laughs) Verify your voice match settings in the Google Home app. Oh, is your Google a man? No, my Google is usually a woman, but my Google likes to pretend to not understand my voice sometimes because my Google sometimes. Yeah, our like Google a man. sometimes likes to think it doesn't know the difference between me and Val. My Google always recognizes Charlie's voice, and Charlie's voice is not the voice that was programmed for this Google. <laughs> Only mine was. It's like, oh, hey, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yo, Chuck, what's up? Turn the lights off. Got you. 
all of a sudden it gets a Philly accent and it's like, yo, Chuck, got this. You want the lights off? Chaz. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> so do I hate Chaz. I hate it. So sorry if we have any Chazes who listen. We hate I'm your so name. sorry, Chaz. I'm so sorry. Well, anyway. <laughs> Hey, Stephanie. Hey, Sarah. <laughs> hey. Hey, Leslie. <laughs> Someone's got the Hey. Girls. Hey. Y'all ready, ready to talk, talk about some about ghosts? ghosts? Are we going to get aggressive with it now? <laughs> hey. Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? Y'all ready to talk about some ghosts? I don't know. You made me so self-conscious. <laughs> <last> I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we nailed it. I think that I was think the best take we've ever done. I agree. I refuse to do it again. <laughs> oh, we're not going to. That's it. That's the final one. Oh, well, then let me bring the mood down and get into my story. <laughs> All right, Stephanie, how are you going to bring the mood down? Okay, I'm talking about a really horrendous crime. That's how I'm going to bring the mood down. So, as you may or may not remember, I mentioned at the end of the episode last week that my story this week involves somebody from my story last week. So, (laughs) where do I begin? So, Melinda Dawson, who ended up being the biological daughter of the mayor of McCainesville. Okay. This is completely unrelated to that, but she didn't know that. So, Judy and Melinda, Judy is her adopted mother who was like her best friend. She loved Judy. Like Judy was her good Judy. Melinda and Judy, like they were tight. And they filmed an episode of Maury together <laughs> about the Hicks babies. Okay. They, you know, Judy talked on the show too about her experience with with getting her baby, which she got the instructions when she got the phone call. She was to go to Georgia within 12 hours, walk in the front door, sign the birth certificate, head out the back door, get out of town as quickly as possible. Sure. The usual also, she drill. handed over $1,000. It wouldn't be until 30 years later that Melinda and Judy would realize that they were part of a devastating black market plot by Dr. Hicks to illegally sell newborn babies to couples in six states in America from 1951 to 1964. There's evidence that Dr. Hicks told birth parents that their baby had died. We went over all of this. Yeah, listen to so last that's a starting week if place. you didn't. So that's how they ended up on Maury in July of 1998. I think it was a week before that episode even aired, though. Judy was murdered. Before it aired, but after it filmed? Well, of course, after it filmed. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Yes. What? Okay. <laughs> it makes sense. Murdered? Yes. Yes, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about the crime, which content warning is really terrible. So Judy was babysitting her six-year-old granddaughter, Brooke. This was Melinda's niece. An intruder entered the home, brutally beat and raped her, and strangled her to death. Brooke, the granddaughter, came out to see what was happening, and the attacker also assaulted Brooke and strangled her and left her for dead. Brooke was six years old. (gasps) That's a baby! Yeah, it's terrible. So, the morning after the attack, Brooke woke up because she was not dead. She Mm -hmm. was left for dead. She woke up, she called a family friend, and she left a voicemail The voicemail said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but my grandma died and I need somebody to get my mom for me. I'm all alone. Somebody killed my grandma. Please get a hold of me as soon as you can. So she was bloodied. She was bruised and she was naked. And she went next door to get help from the next door neighbors. The neighbor, Tanya, Tanya Brazell, was cooking breakfast for her own children at the time. And she made Brooke wait outside. For 45 minutes. What? Naked. What? On the front porch. I'm mm-hmm. sorry. The six-year-old girl. Hold on. She's cooking for oh, her you're, own children and mm-hmm. leaves this poor little girl out there by herself? Yes. For 45 minutes. Please tell me someone did something to her. It'll come back up later. All right. So... When Brooke was, um, somebody finally set Brooke up to talk with the police, Brooke said that the man who hurt her looked like her uncle, her uncle Clarence. Okay. Clarence 
was Melinda's husband. <gasps> the, Melinda, the Hicks baby. The Hicks baby. <gasps> mm-hmm. Now, Clarence had an alibi, and they're... At this time, they didn't really have DNA because this was 1998. So this was a year after the Hicks situation blew up in the news. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Melinda even was worried that like the crime had to do with that. Like was somebody hurting them because they were speaking out about the Hicks babies and like what happened. But so even though Clarence had an alibi and they had no other physical evidence, the only evidence they had was that Brooke said... Initially, she said it looked like Uncle Clarence, but then at trial, it became it was Uncle Clarence. And when a jury hears a six-year-old girl say Uncle Clarence killed my grandma and attacked me. They're going to believe it. Even though it's a six-year-old girl. Six years old. Which to them, like, as far as, like, is that heartbreaking? Is that heart-wrenching? Is that fucking awful? Yes. Is that reliable in a court of law? No. But we, what we know from witness testimony is usually the least reliable, the least credible evidence, but it is the evidence that is usually considered like the most damaging. Like that's what a jury will take most seriously because it's very emotional and it's very easy to like be drawn in by that. Mm -hmm. But moving forward, so Clarence was tried, found guilty, and he was sentenced to two life sentences. Mm-hmm. And let me guess, he's not guilty. He swore, right, swore his innocence up and down, had an alibi, like, no idea why my niece is saying that this was me, but it was not me. I did not do this. And Melinda believed him. Yeah. Melinda was the yeah. only person who believed him. Her entire family, including her sister, who was the mother of her niece. Sure. Um, the entire family, like, turned on Melinda because they were like, how could you, they thought it was very, like, stand by your man. Mm-hmm. And she was like, I don't believe this. I don't believe this happened. Mm-hmm. Clarence had an alibi. Mm-hmm. There's no other evidence. I don't think that's what happened. I think that she's remembering this wrong. So everybody in her family was like, fuck Melinda. But Melinda was determined not only to free her husband, not because he was, and she says it wasn't even really about him being her husband, but it was about him being the father of her children. Yeah. She was like, he's innocent. And I have two kids with, and my kid's dad is being called a rapist and a murderer. Like I need to clear my, my, you know, son's father's name. And I want to know who really killed my mother because it was not my husband. Yeah, exactly. Like we're here to get justice and we have not gotten justice. Mind you, all of this happened to her a year after the shit about her, her her other shit blew up and, like, became national news. So, like, a year after, like, her biological story, like, that's national news, her mother, her adoptive mother is murdered. murdered. God, what a whirlwind. Right. I'm like, this woman, like, she has been through some fucking things. But she was determined, like I said, to prove that her husband was innocent. So she went on, like, her own mission of, like, collecting DNA. (laughs) Of collecting DNA? I thought you were just going to be, like, an investigation, but she went straight into collecting DNA. So she spent six years collecting DNA samples from men around town. It said that she would flirt with men at strip clubs, and she would pull strands of their hair. (laughs) Oh, my God. She's awesome. Yeah, I know. Don't you love her? I love this. Yes, she's fantastic. But she's, you know, she... Oh, and she kept it all in her freezer. Like, she had a freezer with, like, labeled DNA evidence that she'd been, like, collecting over the years. I love that. And, like, to her kids, she's like, that's mommy's evidence freezer. Don't go in there. Right, she's like, don't touch mommy's evidence freezer. (laughs) So, meanwhile, Clarence's lawyers are trying everything. They have been denied every appeal. They are out of ideas. And they're, like, trying to figure out what to do. Meanwhile, Melinda is, like, accumulating DNA. Yeah, she's (laughs) just, like, going crazy. And she's like, I can't do this by myself. I have no way to, like, test this DNA. (laughs) I need need to get somebody to, like, help me out with this. She stood back one day and she was like, okay, this is starting to get crazy. Right? She's like, maybe, maybe stealing people's DNA. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm going going a touch too far. So she hires a a private investigator to like help her figure this out. 
Um, in that process, the private investigator also convinced her sister to reconnect with her and, like, come back in communication with her. Um, and eventually, like, she did warm up to her, even though they hadn't spoken at this point in, um, like, five years. Wow. So they were, she said, we were a family again. My sister was listening to me. Uh, and she was getting more information. They were both, like, hearing more from each other about what happened. And Brooke, who at this point was 10 years old, Brooke was voicing concerns that she was afraid that she had picked the wrong person. Yeah. So Melinda is like, we are going to find this. Like, don't you worry about it. Like, we're going to figure this out. Okay. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it's May 2002. And... Clarence's lawyers have submitted for a new a motion for a new trial, but the prosecution argued that Melinda had polluted her family, that like she had like brainwashed them or oh manipulated my them gosh. Okay. into whatever. Sure. And the court agreed and they decided that there were no grounds for a retrial at this what? time. What? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because right. they didn't have anything to go on and they didn't have any DNA. Like they they didn't have anything that proved it wasn't him. Yeah. That it was definitively another person. So one morning, Melinda picked up a copy of the Ohio newspaper, which was the Akron Beacon Journal on the way to work. On the front page of the newspaper was a story that was going to break the whole fucking thing wide open. So there was a couple, Tanya and Earl, uh, Jean Mann, they were arrested for the rape of their own children. Oh! <gasps> The two of them, the couple. And that couple were the next door neighbors that wouldn't let Brooke inside for 45 minutes. Shut up. Because they were afraid that she would recognize him because he just left the house and came home. It was his house that she was knocking on the door. And they needed 45 minutes to cover and get him to a place where she wasn't going to find him. And be able to get her in without being worried that she would find him and say that he was the man that attacked her. Oh my god, I hate that so much. So then she was like, he's the one who did this. He, They're the ones who did this. They raped their own children. They're the ones who, who did this. And she went to them for help. And this is why they kept her out on the porch for 45 months. Like, everything was clicking into place. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then they were like, okay, well, how do we prove this theory? Like, how do we get this to happen? How do we, like, find out whatever? So Earl Mann had gone missing for a few years. um, But when he was found and he was put in prison, he was in the same prison as Clarence. And Melinda was like, Clarence, you got to befriend that son of a bitch and get some DNA. Talk to him. She's like, I'm enjoying. She's like, you get a coke can, you find a cigarette butt, you tell him he's cute, and you pull out a butt hair. You get close to that man. Yeah. And of course, Clarence is like, I'm scared, and she's like, Bruh, I don't want to hear it. The DNA, we need it. So uh, at one point, uh, they were out in the yard. Clarence was out there with Earl, and Earl was smoking a cigarette, and he threw the cigarette butt. And when he left, Clarence took the cigarette butt put it in the Bible in his cell and kept it there for a few weeks until he could get it mailed to his lawyer. They tested it and Earl was tested positive as the attacker who killed Judy Johnson and attacked Brooke. Earl, you are the murderer in this case. He was the murderer. Clarence was set free. How long was he in there? Six years. Oh, Gosh, six years away from his kids for something he definitely didn't do. for a crime that he did not commit. Jeez. So they eventually, like, after he was exonerated and got out, they did end up getting divorced, but they stayed friends because she did everything she could to prove he was innocent, Mm -hmm. and she stood by him all that time. Mm -hmm. And since then... She's just been trying to find her biological mother, mm-hmm. and that's the the mystery she's working on solving these days. Wow. She's a real sleuth. She's, right? She's a real She's sleuth. a real fucking sleuth. She's a goddamn detective. Right? Oh, wow. Mad yeah. props. 
So wild, right? She had a real crazy, like, decade that decade. Yes. It's been a wild ride for Melinda. Wow. Well, Melinda, girl, I hope 2020 was, like, nothing for you because after everything else you went through. She's like, I've been through it. She's like, 2020, this ain't nothing. 2020 ain't got shit on Melinda Dawkins. It doesn't. It doesn't. She's a bad bitch taking DNA and taking names. So that she can label the DNA to test it later. I said Dawkins. It's Dawson or Elkins because it was her husband was Clarence Elkins. Yes. And then I was like Dawkins, but now it's Dawson. Nice. Or formerly Elkins. Wow. <laughs> so that's the <laughs> Hicks saga slash a uh, side story off of the Hicks saga. Isn't that wild? It right. Is wild. Like she was just on this other thing I was watching, and then she mentioned like briefly that her mother was murdered and i was like oh my god that's horrible and then i looked into that and then i was like what and then she figured out who killed her mother (laughs) damn this woman is badass she's like just sign me up and put me on the detective force because i'm doing your job better than y'all are i mean for real (laughs) give that woman a desk and a nameplate she's got a job here she's got a job done all right, Sarah, what are you talking about this week? Well, this week I'm talking about some more ghosts. Surprise, surprise. Yes, I knew Damn. it. You spooky bitch. We'll see how long I keep this up. We'll see. I think so far we might be going all of January. So maybe January will be dry January, ghost January for me. I don't know. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, you're not drinking good. alcohol, but you're talking about ghosts. I'm not drinking alcohol, but I'm filling myself with some spirits. I love that. (laughs) So this week, I am talking about the Dumas Brothel, and this is located in Butte, Montana, or as I like to say, but, because it says, it's spelled but with an E on the end, so butte. I was going to say buddy. Buddy. Uh, this is in Butte, Butte, Montana. Fun fact about the Dumas brothel. It was open and running from 1890 to 1982, and it is officially the longest running brothel in America. That is a fun fact. Yeah. Super fun. Huh. Not everything <laughs> that happened there was fun. A lot of it wasn't no, I fun. No, <laughs> But, yeah, longest running brothel, running well past the years when prostitution and brothels became illegal. Mm -hmm. 1982. So, Mm -hmm. a little bit of history. The Dumas brothel was opened by French-Canadian brothers, and it served all levels of the community in Butte, Montana. It was two floors with a basement. The top floor was fancy, upper-class, luxurious suites, For your men with money. Uh, The second floor also had a balcony sort of like system where it then could look down onto the second floor and you could see into the rooms on the second floor, I guess, if you wanted to show. I don't know. Second floor. That kind of thing. Yeah. First floor was the middle floor. So like middle class, more of a common area. That's where the saloon is, was... Uh, so the middle floor, middle floor slash first floor, because there's a basement. So I keep calling it middle, but it's technically the first floor. Anyways, that's your main area. It's got the lounge. It's got rooms off to the side, middle ground. Then you have Mm -hmm. the basements. The basement is interesting because the basement is definitely low class, low level, not nice. That's where most of your the miners and the lower class men were going down to the low basement of the brothel. That's where the seedy underbelly was. And about the basement was it was connected and branched out through tunnels. So tunnels would lead directly to the working mines nearby. So the workers from the mines could just walk down the tunnel and get right into the brothel. They had a few tunnels that connected to multiple mines. And then they have another tunnel that connected to the courthouse so people could just go straight from the courthouse to the brothel. <laughs> or vice versa. Or vice you meet versa. a lady of the night and you decide you want to make your wife. You walk down over there and you get married. Or, you know, if you know you're going to court the next morning, you go have yourself a good crazy night out. Stay out until the very last minute. And, and then, then you then just you walk over to court to the from quarter. the brothel. From the brothel. You know. There you go. Easy peasy. And done. They were really about efficiency in getting their That's dick That's what wet. I'm understanding. <laughs> 
you just have to be efficient. All right. So in the basement is where also a lot of people, that's where a lot of people died. You had a lot of violence in the basement. You had a lot of prostitutes killing themselves. A lot of people died. A lot of people died. A lot of people died in the brothel in general, but it's found that um, they assume most of them were in the basement level. So this is one of those stories where I wrote all my notes down out of chronological order. So I'm like flipping back and forth to make sure that I have everything Right? right. That's just your basic history of the hotel motel holiday in brothel. And when I learned about this brothel was I went on a ghost adventures binge this weekend and a few episodes stuck out, stood out. And this was one of them. And normally I don't like to watch the episode and just give a recap of the episode because that's not what dead time stories is. Like I'm going to do my real research, but this episode featured two characters that were incredibly fascinating that when I was just doing research on the hotel, or I keep saying hotel, when I was doing research on the brothel, this would not have stood out to me as much if I had not watched the Ghost Adventures episode and seen these people who are associated with the brothel and the other things that they find. So I'm going to talk a lot about that. (laughs) And the first thing to talk about is when Ghost Adventures did their investigation, which was in 2016, the owner at the time was a man named Michael. And this dude is super weird from the get-go. Of course he is. From the beginning. So normally on this show- Like out the gate, fucking weird. Just from the moment, literally from the moment he walks on camera- You're like, something's up here. So normally on Ghost Adventures, the people that they're interviewing can seem a little, they're a little odd. You know, they're people who are dealing with ghosts or live with ghosts. But they're usually normal people like you or me who's just like, I might be a little giddy because I'm on camera. I'm a little spooked because I am dealing with these ghosts. But overall, you know, any other regular person. This guy's immediately off-putting. He apparently, according to Zach, made them wait like two hours before he showed up. And they're just like standing outside waiting. They're like, we don't understand what's going on. Then he shows up. They set up the cameras in the entryway. And the owner, Michael, walks through the front door. And he walks in. And he immediately looks like he's just startled and taken aback by the cameras. And he's like oh, are we doing this? We're doing this right here. We're really just like, we're just jumping into this. We're doing this. Just like doing this. And Zach looks at the camera and like looks back at him and is like, yeah, like this is what we do. You called us to come out here and investigate. Like we didn't call you, you called us. So the guy's just really weird. He's got like fidgety eyes he seems very antsy he seems very anxious and he says i don't want to talk like right here in the lobby he's like i have thousands of rooms we could go talk in like let's go somewhere else and zach was like do you want to go upstairs and he's like yes that'd be great and zach is like wherever you want to go and then like jim looks side eyes the camera and is like so not starting off on a good foot here with michael So Michael starts talking about how when he's in the building, he notices and he realizes that he feels different and that he seems to change when he's there. And as he's giving this interview, he's like, he's short with them. He seems antsy. He seems like angry that they're there and uncomfortable that they're there. And he keeps losing his train of thought and he keeps sort of like, Having this involuntary eye movement where he keeps blinking really hard and just sort of swiveling his eyes around in his head, which I know for some people is an involuntary movement that happens, but the way they film it and the way they show his interviews, sometimes he's doing it a lot and then sometimes he's not doing it at all whatsoever. And then when they interview him in a separate room outside of the brothel, He's not doing anything at all. So he might have this sort of uh, reaction or twitch naturally, but it definitely seems to be amplified when he's in this building. 
that or he is having a reaction to something that's around him and that that kind of a twitch is not normal for him. Who knows? But watching it on camera, it's very noticeable that like something's off and he's not comfortable and he's the owner of the establishment. So he says that um, he knows he changes when he's in there and he says that he feels mood swings, that he can sometimes get angry. He can sometimes just sort of, he feels like he gets short with people. He loses his temper. He feels something come over him that he can't control. Now, fun fact, when we interview his best friend and another woman who works there later, she tells us that Michael... Not only does he own the brothel, but the house that he lives in and that he now owns is the same home that was owned by the owner of the brothel. Michael apparently didn't know that when he purchased the home. And so there are some lines drawn being like, is the owner of the brothel channeling through Michael? Like, is he using Michael? What's going on there? I don't know. Either way, we're like seven minutes into the episode and I'm skeeved out by Michael. So Michael says that people get poked, prodded and touched a lot in what is now the museum. He said that it's usually men who are poked and they're usually like poked, prodded and sometimes sexually groped. So these ladies are still thirsty Then we interview the second character in this duo cast of characters. And this is Jenny. This is Michael's best friend. This is the woman who told us that Michael also bought the home owned by the same guy who owns the brothel. Jenny, she's also super odd, but she doesn't seem odd at first. At first, she seems super normal, like she's just telling the ghost adventures about what's happened to her, what's happened to Michael. She's like she's gossiping when she's like, Michael owns the same house owned by the guy who owned this brothel. And he's like doing everything he can to keep this place alive. And oh, my God, it's like he's fucking possessed. He's like obsessed with him. So she seems super fine at the beginning. But then she starts becoming weird as fuck. Before she becomes weird as fuck, she tells Zach that Michael was attacked in that front lobby area. So when Michael was super weird when he came in the door and he was like, oh, so we're doing this here right now. It's probably because he was attacked in that area. So he didn't want to do an interview there. And while he was walking down the hallway and she says it was just her and Michael in that area. She said he was walking and it's like someone just fucking shoved him right in the chest and knocked him right on his back just while he's mid stride. It's like, it's not like he hit a wall. It's like something actively hit him to make him fall backward and move backward and knocked him to the ground. So now she starts getting weird and they're standing on the first floor middle level. And remember, the second floor has that balcony walkway sort of thing going on. So they're standing down below having their interview and she all of a sudden starts doing the weird eye twitchy thing where she's like looking around really quick and then like blinking very forcefully and like rolling her eyes around in her head And then sort of just, again, it's almost involuntary movements where she's like startled, but she's continuing to talk like I'm doing. Like she's just telling the stories and then having these physical reactions, but like trying to keep her train of thought while her body is being, I don't know, stimulated something. And then she starts telling Zach that like, he's here. And Zach's like, I'm sorry, excuse me, who's here? And she's like, the judge, the judge is here. And she's startles at like something that she sees up Ugh. above. And Zach's like, who's the judge? And she was like, the judge is here. He knows that you're here. He doesn't like you. And Zach's like, what? So she's being super weird as fuck. Earlier, 
they had Mike up on the third floor while they were doing another interview with him. And he was talking about how he was up on the third floor cleaning out a room and he felt a very negative female presence in that room that just made him feel like she was very territorial. And he was like, she was just a very strong negative presence. But while we were in there, we then felt like a third interference come in, like another presence come in over the woman's presence. And it was stronger. And it just urged Michael to get out of the room. And while Michael is telling this story to Zach, Zach's like, Wow, that's really interesting. Hey, hold on. I'm having like a burning sensation on the back of my neck. Like it hurts like it's being rubbed raw or something. They take the camera over. He's got a welt on the back of his neck about the size of a dollar piece, like a coin. Oh my God. That's like a dollar. And it's just red right on the back of his neck. Now, while we're down having that creepy as fuck interview with Jenny, where she's like, he's here. He doesn't like you. The judge. She said, you got attacked earlier, right? Up on the second floor on the back of your neck. And he was like, yeah, I got like scratched while I was talking with Michael. And she goes, yeah, that's the judge. He doesn't like you. And so Zach's like, okay, cool, 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 cool. Tight, tight, tight. Well... (laughs) Since you seem to be really sensitive to him right now, let's go upstairs. And Jenny's like, okay. And she just blank, matter of fact, goes and just like beeline straight for the stairs and heads upstairs. So they go up to the second floor. She's still just like, you know, who was it? Is it Kennedy Davenport who had the bit where she just suddenly looks over with the big eyes and is like, ding. Ding, ding. Yes. Is that her? That's what Jenny is doing at certain moments is she's just sort of looking around and then at a moment she'll stop, turn, and her eyes are just huge for a second and then she goes back. It's really weird. It's either some actor method thing that she's doing and she's doing a good job on camera or I don't, something is happening to this woman When they're up here and up on the second floor. So she just keeps Mm -hmm. talking about how he's here. He doesn't like you. He's not happy that you're here. And while she's saying that, Zach was like, why, you know, ask him, why doesn't he like me? Why don't you like me? Why don't you want me here? And she says, why don't you like him? And then she looks over at Zach and she goes, he's behind you. Fuck that. And then Zach's like, okay. And he walks over to her and he goes, all right. And of course, he's been recording the whole interaction. And he plays back the tape. And on the tape, when you listen back to it, right after Zach says, why don't you like me? Why don't you want me here? There's a man's voice. Sounds like Sam, uh, almost like Sam Watterson. He's just like, I just don't. And the ghost is just like, I just don't like you. So... We're going to travel back down to the basement and we're going to leave the judge alone for just a second. Let him cool off because he's had a lot. Down in the basement is the main reason that Michael apparently called them out. He feels like a very negative energy resides in the basement and that that's where it mainly lives. Um, He says that it's a sinister energy. He says it's an old man who resides down there and that the old man doesn't like Michael. And Michael is, again, visibly, physically uncomfortable and uneasy being down in this space and says out loud. Of course he would be. Why wouldn't you be? Yeah. And Zach is like, does he scare you? And Michael's like, yes, 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 yes. He scares. He's scary. So he's definitely terrified and they then go they walk down they look at the rooms and one thing about the brothel is that in all of the restoration originally when it was made a historical building one of the clauses was that the furniture the items inside every artifact inside of it was to be kept there and kept as original and authentic as possible so in all of the restoration they're keeping everything that they have that they have found since they've excavated the basement since they've renovated or like restored it so everything is the same 
down to the front in the basement is where it's the most historically accurate and most of the artifacts live. So they've got furniture. They've got scratchings on the walls that people made when they were down there. There's little hidey holes in the crevices in the walls. And if there was a box of matches in that hidey hole from 1960, that box of matches is still there. You know, like it's all still kept intact. So it's just a hubbub for spiritual activity because nothing has changed. It's all still there for them. And when they were going down into the basement with Jenny, she's walking down to show them a place where she had an experience. And as she's walking, you see it because she's walking, the camera's filming her right before she reaches the threshold of two doors on either side. It's almost like something runs right across her path because she just stops and is startled. And he's like, oof. Come to find out, while they're doing all of this initial research investigation, every one of the crew keeps getting little jolts where you're just sort of getting a little, like, trimmer up your spine or you're getting a little zap of energy or you're getting a little, just a little jolt. They said it was happening to them all throughout. So this whole place is just, like, bumping and hopping and jumping and zapping and zip zap zopping its way around the spirit world (laughs) zip zap zopping it's crazy (laughs) so i'm just gonna go over a few things that they catch but one of the things they do is they send these actresses in and the beginning part of the night they dress them up in old period garb and send them into the rooms in the basement as prostitutes to try and trigger activity and at one point they pull out, they use the connect camera as part of their evidence, mm-hmm. and it'll pull up like <laughs> stick figures when a spirit is supposed to be there. So this girl's <laughs> sitting on the edge of the bed, and she keeps looking over her shoulder like there's something behind her. So they go down, they bring the connect camera with her, and she's like, it just feels really cold on my left side. And all of a sudden, a figure pops up behind her on her left side in the connect camera that looks like it's sitting on the side of the bed. And she's like, I have goosebumps all on my left arm. And they ask it, they're like, if you're there, can you touch her arm, touch her arm for us? And of course you're watching the connect image and it's the little stick figure and it's kind of shaky and it's kind of moving a little bit. And then they say, touch her arm and it moves and then it touches her arm and it's still. Like rock still. And it's just there touching her arm. And then she goes to put her hand where it's touching. And as soon as her hand gets there, it goes away. And it doesn't come back for the rest of the time. Isn't that crazy? What? What? Yep. So there's only a few more little ghost stories associated with the brothel that I'm going to tell. But one of the other ghosts that you'll find if you research this that pops up is a woman named Eleanor Knott. And Eleanor Knott was the madam of the brothel from 1950 to 1955. And legend has it that she was planning to run away with her lover in the middle of the night. She had packed her suitcase. She was ready to go and everything. But she never made it. Her body was found the next morning by one of the other women named Bonita Farron, who called for the doctor, but it was too late. She was already dead. It's rumored that she committed suicide. It's also rumored that Bonita murdered her because Bonita became the next madam. But the doctor ruled it a natural cause of death. So no one really knows. But what they do know is that people catch the glimpses of a woman walking with a suitcase all the time. (laughs) Usually coming from the second floor bedroom apartment that was the madam's bedroom. People say they'll see a figure distend the distend. They'll see a figure descend (laughs) the stairs holding a suitcase. And when they go to look, there's no one there. So they say that Eleanor is still roaming around. Another story is that at one point, an artist came to stay in the hotel. Uh, I keep saying hotel. It's like I know it's like a hotel with perks. Um, it's a hotel. A motel. Holiday Inn. So it's an artist hotel. came to Can't stay take a ho- to a hotel. <laughs> and like paint. 
So she stayed in the apartment that was the Madam Suite and legend story has it, rumor has it, that while she <laughs> went to go paint, every time she went to paint, she just kept seeing the same face of a woman over and over and over again. And she kept painting the same face. And she finally said, fuck it, I give up and left. Who is this bitch? The owner pulled the piece of art out of the trash and it's the image of a woman in a hat with like a coy smile on her face. And it's believed that that's either Eleanor or Bonita Farron. No one really mm-hmm. knows. There's a lot of other ghost shit that happens. Of course, while they're researching on the Ghost Adventures episode, they catch a whole bunch of more shit. Footsteps, stomps, few more spirit box sessions of like some words being said. Nothing of any crazy importance. But while I was doing a little more research on this story for the history and any other ghosts, I came across a very interesting piece of information. And that is that our odd owner, Michael, passed away unexpectedly in 2018. What? No, I couldn't find a cause of death anywhere. It said that he passed away suddenly on the morning of January 17th, 2018. No other details. No other details. Leaving the brothel in his partner's hands. So his partner tried to keep it going. But in 2019, it ultimately was sold to another couple who is restoring it and now they're doing tours and ghost tours and I was they're saying turning it into a bb no that's what michael ultimately wanted to do with it that's right that's what you should do with it michael ultimately wanted to restore it to its old glory and turn it into an antique bnb um they yeah. said his legacy was that he cared so much about that brothel and keeping it there for history And I'm not sure why he passed away, though I will say discovering that information after watching that episode twice is very spooky. Considering Mm -hmm. this episode aired in 2016, he passed away just two years, not even, because this episode aired in December of 2016. He passed away in January of 2018. Which makes me think that they probably filmed this episode around January of 2016. So two years after they yeah. filmed it, he suddenly passes away. So who knows? Take that as you will. Definitely seems spooky. But I will say that the Dumas brothel is AF. haunted AF. There's mm-hmm. a judge who doesn't like you. And apparently... It'll take over I hate you. That part. That part is so creepy. It was so scary. And I wish that I could fully explain on air what it was like to watch these people because the skeptic side of me is like, that's some weird acting. Like, that's a choice. You guys really wanted the attention. But then the other side of me is like, that's scary, girl. Right? Woo! Scary girl. So. Unlike our other haunted place in Montana from last week, this place is not up for sale anymore (laughs) because this other couple bought it last year or year before last. And um, it is still open, however, for tours and ghost tours. And it's haunted as fuck. Mm. And that's my story. And my little update that was fucking crazy. That is fucking wild. Right? I'm like, if I recommend any episode to watch, that's probably in my top episodes to watch. That's like, it's crazy. There you go, people. Go fucking watch it. After you've listened to every episode of this podcast, if you haven't already. (laughs) So scary. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. We've got some entertaining, fucked up stories this week. (laughs) This year is starting out strong. I'm excited. I'm excited for other things that I have coming up on the docket. I'm excited for potential new content on Patreon. I'm just excited. I'm excited to to life and to staying in more. (laughs) I think that sounds great. But like accomplishing things and doing things for myself. I'm excited. It's great. It's it's a good year so far. So far so good y'all. Wild and crazy and so far so good.
Yes. If you want to support this wild, crazy, so far, so good time at Dead Time Stories, you should totally do that by subscribing to our Patreon. We have $1, $5, and $15 tiers. Totally accessible. Really kind of full. A really full. I can't even talk. Really fun, cool, awesome, exciting, extra content on there for you. And we, of course, have the Patreon exclusive Facebook group, which is my favorite part of Facebook. It's like the only reason I still go on Facebook. Honestly, these days. yes. 100%. It's such a good time. 5,000%. It's such a good time in there. We get such amazing free labor from our friends in that group who pay a dollar in a month we to really be on our do. Patreon and then make great jokes in our fantastic Facebook group. You know you want to so be there. So you should join. You should totally join if, if just for that. And of course, you can also buy merch from our website, Deadtime Stories, all one word with a Z, dot com. But there are other ways you can support our show that don't cost you any money that are still totally super crucial, like leaving a five star review on our iTunes page. That's how other people find us. That's how we get snuck into that little algorithm. And that helps us just as much as a little purchase might. So you should do that. And if you take a screenshot of it and then email it to us at Deadtime Stories with a Z, all one word at gmail.com. We will send you a sticker to your house, and it'll be really, really cool, and we would really appreciate it. And that's about it. I'm tired of the spiel, as I'm sure you are. Yeah. I'm like, maybe we should shorten that. I'm sleepy. I feel And it. My, my ear hurts. It's all right. <laughs> well, thank you guys for listening. Good night. Have scary dreams. Thank you so know. much for listening to our show. We appreciate you guys. I'm Stephanie. I'm Sarah. And this has been Dead, Dead Time, Time Stories. Thanks for listening. Dead Time Stories is hosted by Sarah Heddens and Stephanie C. Curtison. Music and editing by Eric Gershnow. Artwork by Rennie Slackman. 